Good morning. It's our pleasure to be with you from Japan, and we bring greetings from the field, from our mission, from the missionaries of Send International in the field in Japan. We also bring greetings from our uh, mother church, the Tachikawa Church and Josui Church. Both of these churches are churches that support our ministry in Japan as well, and, um, and they are a special um, place for us, a special body of believers for us. We bring greetings from them as well. Um, we just want to thank you for your participation in the gospel with us in Japan. Uh, it's a wonderful fellowship that we have, and we're so thankful for the churches here that uh, keep us in their prayers and also uh, support our ministry to the Japanese people, and especially now in camp and church and youth uh, ministry that the Lord's given us. It's always a blessing when Laura and I are home. Uh, we have been there a long time on the field, but uh, home is, you know, special, and uh, we enjoy uh, being back, and it's great encouragement. We are so blessed in America. Um, and I know, you know, there are struggles that we're going through, but... Uh, I don't know, I haven't been in Europe, so I can't say I've been all over the world to, to say this, but when you can come and turn on radio and hear Christian music uh, all day long, or you can listen to a, a message, a gospel message, a Bible teaching, any time of day or night, um, wow, we are just tremendously blessed in this land to have that freedom um, it's not that uh, in a place like Japan that you can't do that. It's just that you can't afford to do it. There are no Christian radios. There are no Christian TV. They have a certain slot in, uh, you know, I think it's like 5 o'clock in the morning or uh, the Lutheran Bible Hour or something like that comes on like a regular uh, radio station. Of course, we have military radio that you can and can listen to, uh, but that's very... Only periodic scheduled um, Christian broadcast would be on anything like that. So we come home and we are so blessed. It's just the, uh, I know you don't feel it so much because you're in it all the time, but the atmosphere here is so uplifting when you come out of a place like uh, uh, like a land like Japan. And uh, Brother uh, Randy prayed for the persecuted church and the oppression and all that they feel, which is very real. The darkness is, is very real. In Japan, there's not persecution like physical hitting or uh, imprisonment or that type of thing, but there is an atmosphere of oppression of the truth of the, the gospel that uh, we live in that. So it's just wonderful to be home. It's wonderful to be here. It's very uh, uplifting. I want us to go to a passage, the Word of God, and I'm going to speak a little bit about the, the um, in the midst of all of this blessing, it seems to be slipping away. And I want to talk a little bit about what are we going to do in the time that's coming of the slipping away. Uh, I don't want to be negative, and I don't want to put this in a negative framework, but uh, I have to talk a little bit about the changes that... Uh, it feels like or it seems like are coming. And I, I've done a little bit of work on that, so I, I want to present that. But let's go to the Word in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 24 to 30. Um, 
I want to read this passage for you. And this is from the NASB. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's pray. Father, I know that um, you're here present today, and I ask that you would speak through your word to lift our hearts to Christ again, that he might be central in everything, and that he might get glory, and that this worship might bring, bring pleasure to your heart is our desire and prayer. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I mentioned that it's such a blessing, but we also feel the slipping away. In an article in the newspaper, uh, an editorial article, it's a little uh, column in the Greenville paper this past week, this lady uh, makes a comment. Three little letters, great big problem, G-O-D. Three little letters, great big problem. And she went on to talk about the problem of the conservative element in our society and especially affecting the last political election um, and how she thought that that determined which direction the whole thing went. But it was so slanted. It was so obvious that it was, um, you know, the, the big problem that she was talking about is uh, the conservative um, religious people in our nation. And she, she cites an Emory University um, professor, Abrahamowitz, and he says there are three trends that are long-term. They're not going to change. Three trends in this nation. One is racial diversity. Number two is declining marriages, marriage rate. People will not be marrying on into the future. And changes in religious belief. And her conclusion after she quotes this man is actually the changes have already taken place and the results of the previous election just prove it's a kind of a to show that this is the truth. The diversity, not marrying, living together, and the change in um, religious beliefs. And see, we come out of a completely humanistic culture in Japan. There is no God. There is no statement of who God is in Japan. That tree is God. That um, everything around you is God. So there's no absolute of God, who God is. So it's just completely what I think and what you think can be different. And there is no standard to go by. And that's a humanistic, secular society. And that's the way the whole thing works. But you see that because there is no standard in it, uh, there's no clarity of what's right and wrong. And uh, life is lived in that kind of fog of nothing is true and nothing is uh, real. Nothing is absolute. Take it all out and then we'll just be humanist. And that's the, the context that we live in, in in Japan. But hasn't history already proven that this doesn't work? That the secular society, communism, 
doesn't work. It's obvious that it's already failed. But the, the humanistic idea that this is what, take the absolutes out, take God out, and we'll solve all of these problems. And that's exactly the slipping away that's taking place in our society. And we feel that we're coming closer and closer when we come back to what we experience and the kind of cloud that we live in in, uh, in Japan. It's a, it's a, nothing is absolute. Where is truth? Where is the absolute in society? Now, I want to go back to this day and to talk about the, the city of uh, the Philippi a little bit and try to bring us into this passage with a little bit of background because the parallels are there. And I think there are two things that, and I'm jumping ahead right now, but there are two big things that are, that are important for us, and that is attitude and action, these two. And Paul is going to show us how to live in that context. And so we're going to, we're going to get there, but I have to take you back a little bit. Philippi. The, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony city. It had special privileges because um, Octavian, a general, fought a battle and he gave his soldiers a special privilege of a city area that they could retire to. And so Philippi was that uh, area and they retired there and he gave it the uh, Roman colony type of um, one of the privileges of that status was that they didn't have a, a territorial tax on them. Now, I think if I understand the Roman system, the individual had a tax. But anyway, the territory was not taxed as one of the, the special things that the soldiers got by going to this city. So we, it's a Roman culture. It's a Roman city. It has that Roman uh, flavor. And that Roman flavor pervaded all of the, the old uh, New Testament letters and all of the context that we're, that we're reading about in these uh, letters. But the... The letter that Paul writes to the Philippians has a special warmth to it, a special personal touch, and that we want to look at. Um, let's go back to the beginning of Paul's relationship with them in Acts 16. We're not going to go over it. You, I, I, you already know. I'm just going to mention Lydia's conversion and the household of Lydia, and then the jailer after Paul was put into jail, um, and Paul and Silas. And then that family, and that, that formed the Church of Philippi. Now, according to scholars, this is ten years after that relationship has been formed. And, and now Paul is um, writing uh, to them. And he, uh, let's, his, uh, let's look at their past um, relationship with him included, if you look at chapter four and 16, 14 and 16, included gifts to his ministry over those that ten-year period in chapter... Um, Let's see, four. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction, and you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So over these years, actually, Philip, the Philippian uh, believers have been sharing uh, in Paul's ministry and uh, supporting that ministry. But there's something else happening, and we find that out in, uh, in this particular passage in chapter 1 in verse 7. Um, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. So for the first time, 
Now we know Paul is imprisoned at this point, and this is the first imprisonment in Rome, so he has a certain amount of freedom to move, and he can have uh, guests, but there are Roman guards that are, are present uh, with him. Now, let's, that's the first statement of it, but very interesting when he gets to verse uh, 13, and I realize I'm jumping over sections, but so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, if you look at the Ephesian letter and you look at the Philemon letter, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. So this imprisonment to Paul is a, is a, has a, a meaning that the, the Lord put him in this place. He is a prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner here in Rome, and look what's happened, and it's so awful and so bad. He says, I am a prisoner of the Lord. Do you see the difference? Do you feel the difference? To say, I'm a prisoner of Rome, and this is going bad, and, but no, I'm a prisoner of the Lord who is in control and has placed me here. You know, that hits home because our natural tendency when things go wrong is what? Poor me. <laughs> Poor me. Um, and why did this happen to me? And what, we've moved, what we have moved from is who's in the center of this? Who is in the center of our life? Who is the sovereign Lord in our lives? And who is control? in control? And Paul makes it clear. Imprisonment is, I'm imprisoned in the Lord. I'm, I'm the Lord's prisoner, and he puts me where he wants me. Um, and that's the, the truth that Paul has for us. You know, in Joe Church, when we did that church plant, at one point, uh, we had been in the uh, church, was it uh, six years, I think, and we were, the two-year contracts is how we were renting, and we were living in the church. So we had been there six years, and then the owner said, I'm selling this property, and you have one more two-year contract. You can either buy this place at the end of that, or you get out, and I'm done with you. You know, you either buy it. Well, we had purpose to, to uh, buy at some point in the ministry of, of the church, as a testimony, not because we wanted to buy land and look, you know, uh, big or something like that, but as a testimony to the community that we're going to be here, we're going to stay. We wanted to purchase land and have a building. And so it was in our prayers from the very start of the church. But uh, during that two-year time, we had two years left, and we began to pray, Lord, what do we do? We don't have the money, actually, to, to buy. Uh, we have the help of a mother church that started and sent us out there. So we had some support, we felt, but what? We don't know yet. So what do we do, Lord? And um, we were searching, and a home, a uh, special kind of, um, uh, downstairs was some kind of business, and upstairs was a family place, and we thought, this is perfect. And it had come up in an um, auction. So all we had to do was put in a certain amount of uh, our bid, and the government was doing the auction. The bank had, uh, the, the house was being repossessed by the bank or taken back by the bank, the, a failure in the loan. And so we thought, all I had to do is put in a bid and perhaps ours will be the best and we'll get this, this place. So we talked together, got the church together. This is what we think we can do. The mother church is also cooperating with us. So we sent that uh, information to them. The day that we went to the court to see 
every bid is going to be opened and they're going to tell us who is. They pulled the piece of property off the auction the day that they're supposed to announce it. We thought, Lord, we've been cheated. What happened? This was a great opportunity and we probably would have gotten the bid. We thought we were in a good place that what it was, you know, probably worth. We felt that uh, we were cheated. Do you know we found out later that the bank pulled that off and that there was actually a criminal connection? Something was going on behind the scenes that might have involved us with a criminal organization that um, uh, there was still infighting or something going on in the family that, that had the place. And God spared us. Through, you know, okay, yeah, this is it. And we're, all our hearts and all our prayers were there. And it was gone. And we felt so cheated or whatever. Didn't know what, why it was taken off. But years later, and the Lord opened another place for us and a better place and an affordable place that we were able to. And actually, praise God, the, the, the church loaned, people in the church loaned the, the church money and we paid them back. It, it actually finished in uh, September this year they finished paying for the whole uh, the whole church and and so the Lord do, does that the Lord disappoints us in some things and you know what it does it keeps us in prayer and it keeps us from troubles that we didn't even realize we might have been in and that's the case it, it's uh, it's often the case God's not forsaken us God's not forsaken his purpose and it's not about us personally. It's about His Son. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about His name. It's not about us personally uh, and what, um, what He is doing. Uh, it's about Him, a prisoner of the Lord and prisoner in the cause of Christ. Um, may this be known about us and who our sovereign Lord truly is. What freedom we have. It's not about us. Now, we go on to, to see that um, when Paul writes this, the Philippians still have a concern. Paul's in prison. They've supported him to this point. Now, what's going to happen to the gospel ministry if Paul is not able to minister? And um, that's a real concern, and it, it should be. But look at what Paul says in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 12, that my... My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, up into the uh, family of the emperor, apparently. The testimony of Christ was going on in this time, in, in, uh, in this situation. God has not stopped. Uh, God is not finished. God is not forsaken his servant has not forsaken his work. In fact, it's prospering in ways that he could never know uh, fully. And praise God. Then we, to update uh, Philippi, to update Paul about Philippi, there's one other aspect of the letter that we have to, to understand, and that is the coming of Epaphroditus. And that's going to help us understand uh, Paul's response in this letter. And so we read about that in chapter 2. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. In other words, he's sending him back to Philippi, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. 
for indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And so Epaphroditus, coming to Paul, has given him information about the church at Philippi, and Paul is now responding in his to these concerns that they have, and also his concerns about the church. And there are three, at least, I want to identify here. Two of them are outward concerns, outside concerns, pressures from the outside. And the first one is the opponents, and I think it's adversary, in, and we, we have that in the uh, 27. Uh, let's see, I'm sorry, 28, 128, in the section I just read. In no way alarmed by your opponents, opponents to the gospel, now, certainly in the Roman culture, that's what he experienced. That's what they experienced, growing op- uh, opposition from the culture. It's the culture of emperor worship, worship of Caesar, and there are all sorts of other pagan uh, festivals, uh, rituals. And so if you don't participate, you're marked out. And that's, that's the way it is. You don't participate, you're marked out. And there is an oppression there are opponents, uh, opponents to the to the Christian movement. Now, the second outward uh, opposition to them is an opposition by the Jews, who are talking about uh, circumcision, requiring circumcision in chapter three, verses two and three. And this is serious because it touches the gospel. What is the gospel? Does a man have to be circumcised before he can be saved, or as a, is it required even in the process of sanctification or, or uh, just bringing the whole thing of works before us? Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, who, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that's another outward attack on the church there. An, uh, an attack on the gospel um, from the, the Jewish uh, community against the true preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation uh, by faith through grace uh, alone, and that uh, nothing of our ourselves in that. Now, the third pressure is from the inside, and we know that from chapter 4 and uh, verses 2 and 3. You know that these two ladies had something um, that was amiss in their relationship. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sinteki to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, that's another pressure that's on the church right now, of pressure from the inside. Well, I want to look at these uh, this outside pressure a little bit more, especially that first phrase, the opponents of the gospel. And there seems to be one key word and it's, um, I, I did a little reading. You know, you get online nowadays and you find out all this stuff. <laughs> more than you ever want to know. <laughs> and more than I wanted to know about Roman culture. But um, one of the writers that was telling about this history, uh, recording some of the history of the Roman culture's response to the Christian community in this early formative years, they were intolerant. You ever heard that word? <laughs> Christians are intolerant of of others, of other system, of you know, 
that's what that's the phrase that we often hear. And that's the parallel parallel from ancient days of ancient cultures to this culture today. What is our culture becoming more and more intolerant? They are intolerant is their accusation of us. But this phrase helped me this little thing. Many heathen would gladly accept Christ along with the Roman gods, Mithra, Isis, Serapis. But Christianity demanded a separation. Now that we understand in Japan. It would be fine to keep your Buddhism and add Christ. It would be fine. But when you say Christ alone, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that preaching people don't want to hear. That exclusiveness, that message, Christ and Christ alone, that, that is what the, in, you're intolerant. You're intolerant. But we know it's the truth and we cannot back down. We cannot step aside for that. The message is Jesus and Jesus alone and Jesus only. And so um, this parallel that we see in the present culture and in this culture of, of the New Testament, the church was accused of being intolerant. Can't we all just live together and have no, you know, let our differences just be differences and and I'm reminded of the phrase this lady used. I brought this thing because, you know, three big letters, one big problem, God. And she says, well, religion should be kept in the private conversation. You know, it's personal. Uh, and that's her kind of comment. You know, don't bring it out in the open. Well, that's the, the attitude that we have today and the intolerance. Of, and that's the growing. That's going to be the growing aspect of this, the church uh, intolerant in our in our day, I I looked at the other side too. The um, there's been studies done by call a group called Barna Group. I don't know the I didn't I just know they do surveys of Christian attitudes and checking the culture and and they do surveys and some of the the comments that they made about um, uh, Christianity present day common negative perspective includes. Christianity is judgmental. Christianity is hypocritical. Christianity is old-fashioned. Um, too much involved in politics, which may be correct. But uh, So that's the present-day kind of judgmental, intolerant. And especially this study mentions the if you say anything against the homosexual community, uh, that will be raised up as intolerance and so we're moving to that humanistic, secular, no standard kind of life and community that uh, that uh, puts Christ outside, put God outside of all this and just let us uh, live. But we know that uh, there's no hope in that. There's no hope in that system. And, and yet the, the depravity of our, our, our hearts takes uh, men and women in that direction. Now... What is the answer? Paul has it uh, for us. And I'm not going to do the attitude so much as uh, take a little bit more time on the ac- the action. But the attitude Paul, Paul uh, displays is uh, given to us in 19 through 21. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, that but with all boldness uh, Christ shall be exalted in my body. Sorry. 21. 
whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you look at the whole theme of this book, the repeated phrase, repeated uh, uh, position, attitude is joy. Christ is all. Christ is the center. Christ is everything. That joy of having Christ in the, in the center, that is the attitude to hold, to maintain in our day, in our, our uh, culture. And now I have to go back to why, is, why does he say, why can he say um, life is Christ? I just go to this Galatians 2.20. You know, for us in Christ, a death took place. We no longer live. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the, in the flesh, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul's in the... Christ is the center, and what he has done for me is the center of my life. He has given me a new life. Uh, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not the old person. A new life, a new joy, a Christ in the center. This is our life. He is our life. And this is the message. This is the attitude to, to this uh, day and time that the Christian community must have, that I must have as a Christian. Um, I read a little bit of um, Chambers this morning at my bedside. <laughs> and he did this about joy. He said, now this, is, this really hits home. The full flood of my life, and this is Chambers' quote, the full flood of my life is not in bodily health, not in external happenings, not in seeing God's work succeed, but in the perfect understanding of God and in the communion with him that Jesus himself had. Our joy, our life is in communion with God. It's not about the ha- what's happening. It's not about success. It's not about health. It's not about the circumstances. It's about Christ, our communion, and our fellowship through Jesus Christ with God the Father. That is life. And that we can rejoice, we can glory in that, we can joy in that, always, anywhere, anytime, any circumstances. And uh, we, we must take that attitude in our day. Now, what action? That's where we go to 27. Only, and um, I, the NASB put this in the right place, uh, according to the Greek language, this is to emphasize um, Today's English version does this. Now the important thing, um, translates it that way, only, now the important thing, and uh, here's the important thing, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now from our attitude comes a conduct, a life, and it has to be in accordance with the gospel. And um, this is repeated action. I checked with my Greek scholar, Brother Andy, he tells me these verbs that are commands, imperatives, are uh, considered, you repeat this action. It's a command, but it's a repeated action. So we know it's a process of growing in this, of growing in our conduct that is worthy of the gospel. There will be a process. None of us comes into this completely. We, we have our baggage that we came out with, and God will work on those things. And it's also interesting that it's the word citizen. The word uh, 
Conduct is the word from citizenship in the Greek. So act like a citizen. Conduct like a, conduct yourself like a citizen, a gospel citizen, a, a citizen of Christ's kingdom, this citizenship. So you're in a new kingdom, and we have a new set of conduct, a new rules, a new life. Um, and the English Standard Version says, only behave as a citizen worthy, worthy of the kingdom. Our two examples of this are presented in the book itself, Timothy and Epaphroditus. You want to know what a good kingdom worker, what a good kingdom conduct is? These two men served. They gave themselves in service to the Church of Christ. And, uh, and he brings them up, up to us in chapter 2 as these are kingdom citizens who are worthy of, of our um, following them, worthy of following their example. And I have to include... In our day, um, a comment here about Mr. Carroll, Joe Carroll, the director of our Bible Institute, Randy and Laura and myself and our family, our three kids, not because we told them to go there, but our three kids attended the Evangelical Institute. Mr. Carroll was uh, raised up by the Lord and started this Bible Institute in Greenville. It's a two-year institute, not accredited, but uh, so you won't get transfer course over to any other Bible school, even but the discipleship school. And Mr. Carroll was a kingdom citizen, and he lived by a kingdom code and standard. And he lived by uh, he lived as a kingdom servant, a servant of the king's purposes. You know, he had that Australian background, so he had a little bit of feel of that. You know, the queen and king of England and and Australia is a colony of, you know, he, it was very uh, wonderful to sit under that, that ministry and, and hear, hear his preaching and teaching. And you know what the proof of his kingdom, of his being a kingdom servant is, as I look back on the life and his, the impact, there are ministries throughout the world that were raised up in prayer at the Institute and supported and initiated by his life and teaching and he shared his life with the students that came there. He shared himself with the students. And his concern was the kingdom of God and reaching the lost. And uh, this dear man, I, I think I don't have the correct motto that, and Randy may be able to help me with this, but it's something like, all in Christ, to the glory of God, all else is nothing. He lived that. Something about you know, all in Christ, all is in Christ to the glory of God. All else is going to be zero in the end. And so he lived a life of Christ and Christ centeredness and uh, kingdom purposes. And what is God about? What's he doing? And then we living our lives in the light of that, because all else is nothing. All else is zero. And he used to use terms like that. And, you know, hearing that for the first time coming there as a student, Boy, I was a long way from that. Still am a long way from that. But uh, and it just pierced your heart, you know. What? Uh, well, Lord, I'm not. I'm not there. But He was setting in us these kingdom values of servant, of being a servant uh, of of God's people. And uh, I should ask myself that question in the light of my life now. What am I doing? What attitude do I have? What? Am I doing in the light of kingdom work and kingdom life? Um, that's where I ought to be. Because all else is going to be nothing in the end. And it's, it's about the kingdom. 
Now, there's going to be a progress in that in, in each of our lives. You know, I tried to think about what would it mean to be, what is the worthy of the gospel, worthy of Jesus, worthy of the name of Jesus, because that's the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. What things are worthy of that? What, what things are worthy of his name? And that helps me because that leaves out pride, that leaves out lying, that leaves out cheating, that leaves out immorality, sexual immorality. Those things don't line up with the character of the king. They don't line up with the name of our king. And so I can strike out many things that are unworthy of the king, unworthy of the gospel. They're unworthy of the king. And that's a, a, a way to think about this phrase. What is worthy of the gospel? Well, is it worthy of the character of the king and what I'm doing and what I'm saying? Are they in line with the character of the, the king? You know, that takes out that American dream pretty quick because that American dream was really big for me going into college. And, and I think I was saved in college. But by the time I got to the Institute and was hearing the gospel message and I had this thing that if I just graduated from college and and uh, make enough money to do what I want to do and, and this type of thing, that, that that's life. And, and you know, I... I I was pursuing that, even as a, a Christian. But um, what about the kingdom? And what am I doing for the kingdom? Is it all right to hoard these things into, you know, just so I can have, so I'm comfortable? And but the kingdom? What about the kingdom? And what about Christ? And uh, just by God's grace, in Mr. Carroll's ministry there at the institute, that I came to see some of these things that don't match up with the American way of dream. I want this for me and for my comfort. And and uh, if God gives that, then it's giving so that we can be more involved in the kingdom and what's uh, what God is doing. Now, I sense a great confusion exists in the church in these matters. And one reason I say that is, um, dear girl, fifth grade student, in uh, 89 when we were home, I was a teacher at the institute, um, at the little school connected with the institute. The students brought their families in back way back when. And uh, so the kids would go to school in a little school called the institute, I mean the little school that was a connection with the institute. And they asked me to be a teacher during my furlough year, so I taught the school during that, that year. And this student was a fifth grade student there. And uh, we're on, uh, one day I got a thing... I'm on Facebook. <laughs> and so this note came that uh, this girl wanted to be a, a friend, a Facebook friend. And so she'd been my fifth grade student in, in a class and just a wonderful girl. I think she made a profession of, of faith at that time. And um, uh, I didn't follow her, I have to say, over all the years. But all of a sudden on Facebook, I'm getting, you know, Facebook is kind of funny. You uh, put up what you're doing today. That's the first thing you write in, you know. Today I am. And you just blast that out to the world. And then the world responds back to you. And that type of... <laughs> Facebook is quite interesting. I mean, then the next day you get 25 letters from people of what they're doing that day. If you want to respond to comment to something that they're saying. But anyway, gradually, I'm getting these notes among all the other Facebook notes that... Um, Tonight I'm going to like to have a glass of wine or 
uh, what was the other one? Something like Spanish food and Spanish cocktails. Oh, yeah, cocktails and Spanish. I'm getting these little notes from this former student, and I'm wondering, wow, you know, we didn't teach that stuff. I mean, what? I wonder what her life is right now. And and with all the challenges of young people today and, and what is right and what is... Uh, all of a sudden, I'm afraid some have lost their way in... Um, and it's a concern um, because it matters how we act. Conduct yourselves in a way. See, if she's professing Christ among all those people around her and has this kind of testimony, then... You know, what's the testimony? Is that worthy of Christ? I have to ask. And I, I hope this year, in some um, cases, to situation to get to meet her, perhaps talk with her, but follow up that. Now, Paul has some certain expectations. He gives them the first, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he tells them, I have these expectations, and we can just put in there, these are God's expectations, that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear two things. Stand firm. Standing firm, that you are standing firm. This is used eight times in the New Testament, this phrase. And I especially want to note 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. It adds this additional note. Be men. Stand firm. Be men. All right. Now, <laughs> what does that mean? And... Uh, you can ask my wife. Uh, men are one-dimensional sometimes. <laughs> when they get something in their mind and they're working at that, then you can forget trying to get something else in their mind. I see all the ladies shaking their heads. Now, us guys, we, we don't think about that, but be men. Stand firm. What you're committed to. Be loyal. Stand there. Take the position. Be in Christ. Hold that position. Stand firm on the gospel and be men. That's a good quality, I think, somewhat. <laughs> In some cases, maybe not. And I'm an old history buff, so I read all these World War II history things, and I came across this one where I thought, yeah, this is really standing firm. In the battle in the North Pacific, in the Navy fought 3,700 attacks of uh, Japanese attacks against the ships in the North Pacific that were fighting for the Okinawa, the campaign in Okinawa. So over 6,000 Japanese planes flew into those, in those fights. Um, 1,700 of those were suicide attack planes that actually dove and tried to hit our ships in the, in the North Pacific. One captain wrote at the end of that, um, no man of war, this is speaking of the ship, no captain of a man of war had a crew who fought more valiantly against overwhelming odds. Who can measure the degree of courage of men who stood up to their guns in the face of diving planes that destroy them? Who can measure the loyalty of a crew who risked death to save the ship from sinking when all things seemed lost? Stand firm. The courage to stand, to be unmoved to stand firm, to hold your position. And there's an auxiliary to this standing firm. Let me just mention that in closing. It's stand firm and then 
One mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, striving is an athletic term. And we, if you've done any sport, you know that's true. You have to put effort into that sport if you're going to do well at it. And you'll want to do well if your team has had some goals, set some goals to do their best, and you're going to strive with them. That's true. It's an athletic term. And you are committed to one another. You depend on one another. And here's the thing. You're striving together, not against each other. You're striving together for the gospel. And that little word together is really significant. Don't be about striving against each other. Be about striving to encourage one another in the gospel. Um, What we've already sung about this morning and um, already been shared uh, of encouraging one another in our oneness in the Lord, to follow on with Christ, to stand firm for Christ, that we ought to be striving together to know Jesus, putting Jesus in the center of all of our lives and all of our attitude and our actions. And I just, uh, that little word in there together is so significant, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to close just by offering this little practical uh, thing I think um, one of the things that helped me in, as a young Christian and um, I always come back to this is in college there was um, a navigator group and I was a part of that group but they taught the wheel illustration the worship of Christ is in the center the word of God and prayer these are our relationship God speaks to me and I speak to him I commune with him And then Christian life is about a relationship among believers with fellowship and with our witness in the world. And they call this the wheel, but it's Christ worship is the center of it. But these functions, these four word, prayer, um, fellowship and witness, these together balanced make the wheel move and run in a way. And I think we need that. Uh, And this is my challenge to you, to be sure that these things are balanced in your life. And we need this witness to the world as we're speaking about the world slipping away. We need that witness. We also need to strive together. We've got to keep the word of God and God speaking to us through the word and us communing with him into this life that's a balanced life and keeping Christ the center. Are we appropriating these means of grace? The word of God, are you a person of the word, a person of prayer, a person of fellowship in the body of Christ, a person sharing uh, your faith? And, And these things, the attitude, Christ is my life, the center of everything, and he has given me his life. I'm a new creature in him, and I am walking in fellowship with him. And are our actions, are our, is our conduct, worthy of that name and that person. We need to test ourselves in these matters. Let's pray. Father has already been prayed this morning as as we began that it is true that we have not been walking in a worthy walk and we've lost joy of the Lord and we've let other things, our success or lack of it, take Christ out of the center 
and we count ourselves a prisoner of circumstances or a prisoner of this or that or some person that we just don't get along with and and we've missed it. We've taken you out and Lord forgive and and lead us into conduct that's worthy of the name and help us to know where we're not walking worthy in that. And dear Lord, glorify yourself in this place. Build your church as we know you will do, as you promised in your word. Help Cornerstone Fellowship to stand firm in the gospel, striving together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful Lord you are. What a wonderful work you're doing. We give you all the praise and glory for every step that we see of glorifying Christ in any life. These children, bless them richly. May they see Christ and follow you with all their heart. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.